Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. Clarify a couple things. It's going to be. It's we want to lean into the old, into the ancient, into the tried, the tested ways of Jesus. And we're not here to be uh, flashy. We're not trying to be anything new or different. We're wanting to be people who follow Jesus. We, we, we're not flashy at all, except that we know that, that is the greatest and highest call is to follow Jesus. If you're wondering who we are and what are we about, we're a Jesus people. We are people who love Jesus and we want to follow Him and become more like Him. Every week when I get to preach. I have the privilege of preaching here or in Tableview. Uh, and every week when we get to pray together, when we serve together, when we do community together, I want to let you into what's beating in my heart every week. Is this thing, I long to do this one thing, and I believe it's on the heart of Jesus as well, is to do this, to raise up Christ-like, world-changing leaders. That's what beats in my heart. When I look out here at this room, I go, God, thank God that you've given us these amazing people, God, that we get to, to encourage, that we get to charged with and call them to become Christ-like. What does Christ-like mean? Number one, Jesus would use these other words. He would say, be my disciple, be my follower, be my student, be my apprentice. We want to make, raise up a generation. You're not looking like the, the celebrity pastor. You're not looking like the church name, but a people who are looking more and more like Jesus. Christ-like. That is what we're on about. We make no bones about that. We're not trying to con you out of this. this we want to tell you up front, we are a Jesus people. That's who we are. We bought in hook, line, and sink into that. We want to become Christ-like. Secondly, world-changing. We so, so much believe that when Jesus, he said in Matthew 28, he said, go and make disciples, Christ-like people. And he said this, of all nations. This was not some suburban, small, safe, sanitized thing. This was something big. He said, we want you to go global with this. And we really believe that out of this small congregation in Milton that's growing by the day, that's in, in influence and in courage and in, in, in boldness and size, God is going to birth something ridiculously huge that's going to shape the world as we know it. I believe it. And I really am trusting that more and more that you and I will start to believe this together, that we are meant to be, we are becoming Christ-like world-changing leaders and we're going to raise world, Christ-like world-changing leaders through us. When I say leaders, what do I mean? By that, I mean this, that we are faith-filled, big-thinking, better-farm risk-takers. That's who we are. Anyone convinced? Let me say it again. I promise you, you and I, we are big-thinking risk-takers. We better-farm people. We, we, do not, we don't want to insult God with small thinking or safe living. This is who we are. And I believe that every single person here was made to live and influence bigger than themselves. God never designed one person. There was not one person. He goes, ah, oh, they're just on their own. No, he created everyone with the DNA of a leader to lead in their sphere of influence into greater, greater freedom. I believe God's put that in us, and that's my job, and our job together is to become Christ-like, world-changing leaders, and then to raise that world-like, Christ-like, world-changing leaders through our lives. Is that, is that right? I just want to be honest up front with what I'm trying to do, what's beating in my heart. Whatever we're preaching on, that's still in my heart every week. So this morning, I really want to pray that you and I would become more convinced by the time I'm finished than you are now, that you will be convinced that this is what Jesus wants to do in you and through you. He wants to make you a Christ-like, world-changing leader so that through you, you can raise up Christ-like, world-changing leaders. Is that right? I believe that's what Jesus was on about on his time on earth with his disciples. That's what he was doing with them. 
and he's called us to do the same. So why don't we read together? It's going to be on the screen. Mark chapter 8, verse 35 and 36. Is it on the screen? There we go. Verse 34 and 35. Just two verses. Jesus speaking says this. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Let's pray quickly. Father, I thank you this morning that as we come humbly before your word, would you speak to us? I don't want to play games. don't want to waste a minute of, of our time, God, doing religious jargon or, or silly things, God. We're not here to be entertained. We're not here to even get a, a clear our guilty conscience, God. We're here to seek you and hear your voice speak to us. Father, I pray, give us a vision of who you want us to be and what you're calling us to do. Jesus, and I pray, amen, amen. As quick as I can this morning, the language that Jesus uses in this scripture when he says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone, other translations say, if anyone wants to be my follower, my student, my apprentice, if anyone wants to do any of those things, and he says, then come follow me. That language to us sounds a little bit foreign. Or oh, am I the only one? You know, that, unless, you, unless you've been in church for many years, if you meet someone who hasn't been in church, and you say, disciple, and, and you know, come follow me, Jesus. That sort of language is quite out there. sounds very cult-like type figure. Was it just me? The guy who comes and says, if anyone wants to be my disciple. You know, I'm like, oh, I don't know where that is. It doesn't fit into our modern day context too easily. But I want to take us back into the Jewish mindset this morning because that the culture, believe it or not, that Jesus was not a white, pale-skinned Swedish guy. Believe it or not. Contrary to popular belief, he was not. He was an Arab guy. He was an Israeli by birth. He had that, uh, an olive skin complexion. He lived in a Jew a certain time and place where this language was very common. This language, Jesus, who was a rabbi, a teacher, going up to people and calling them to be his disciples, to say, come follow me, this was common language, commonplace. This was not out of the ordinary. This is what they knew. So let me explain a little bit of uh, Jewish history. Is anyone write around for that? In Jewish culture. Everyone, just to show that we, we know a little bit more than our, what we put our, on our statuses on Facebook. If we go to the next slide, please, Sarah. There we go. Next one. Next one. Brilliant. Leave it there. Great job. Me and Sarah teaming since 8 a.m. this morning. Good job, Sarah. Doing very, very well. So the first thing, just to let you know, children, uh, every child in, that grew up, grew up in a Jewish home, they attended this school. Their primary school education was called Beit Sefer. That was a primary school education for every Jewish child, girl and boy. And what they would do from the ages of 6 to the age of 12 was they would, they, as, as the Jewish language would say, they would stuff them like oxen. That's what the teachers used to say, with the Torah. We'll stuff them like oxen. Just a beautiful phrase. <laughs> going to stuff you like an oxen. That's, just, that's amazing. But that's what they used to say. They used to preach them and teach them the Torah, which are the first five books of our Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books. They learned that and learned it and learned it and memorized it verbatim for, the, for those six years of, of Beit, Beit Sefer. They learned those first five books of the Bible off by heart. Six to twelve years. Amazing. It does sound incredible. We go, we'll never be able to do that until you see a six-year-old sing every lyric of Justin Bieber's new album. And you're like, God forbid, get them the Torah. Get them the Torah, quick. You know, 
But I want to tell you, they had it memorized. It was amazing. And then after these, these years, at the age of 12, what would happen was that girls would go and get married, 12 years old. Sarah, get ready. No? 12 years old, they'd go to get married. And, and, and they're like, we've just mastered PowerPoint. No, go, go get married. And then the boys would go and do what dad did. They'll go run dad's business for him. Go and help him out, learn the trade. But the best of the best of that crop who learned the Torah, who had a great aptitude for the scriptures, went to level two, which is called Bet, Bet Talmud. And this is called house of learning. Bet Sefer means house of the book. Bet Talmud means house of learning. This is for 12 to 14 year olds. And what they would do is they would learn from a rabbi or a scribe. And this rabbi or scribe would teach them and would coach them, not just through the first five books of the Torah, but all the rest of the 34 other books in our, what we call the Old Testament, which is the law and the prophets. And they'll learn this, and they'll learn it off by heart, verbatim. Know it, able to quote it, able to know. What, what, what does it say in the 17th verse of the third chapter of Deuteronomy? Oh, of course, it, it engages with this concept, you know. They'll know that, and they'll wrestle as well with the oral tradition on top of that. Hectic learning. Age of 14, I was still struggling with long division and crying when I had a remainder. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. But let me tell you, at the end of age of 14, what they would do, the boys would then go off. Those who would, after that, great, you've done well, handshake for a little, maybe a, a capping ceremony, and they'll go off to go work with that. But the best of the best, the ones who said, I really have a desire for this thing, the word of God, this, the scriptures, the holy scriptures, they went to the third level, Beit, Beit Midrash. But what happens here was that they would go and find a rabbi. The onus was in them to go and find a rabbi and go and almost apply to be schooled by this rabbi. But the rabbis don't just take anyone. So what they would do is they would test these guys. And they would test them and ask them question, how many times does this word appear in this chapter? And they have to know it by off by heart, count it, and tell them back. And then not only that, they'll ask them about the oral traditions. And they'll quiz them and test the students until they see if, they, if they've got the metal to become like the rabbi. The rabbi was looking for potential to say, will I be able to see something of myself in this guy that I can raise him up to take over what I'm doing later on in life? And what was amazing is that if the rabbi, after this grueling examination, liked what he saw, liked what he heard, he would say these words that were very famous in that culture. He would say this, come follow me. It was words that were often used by rabbis when they were enrolling students to follow them. It's amazing this, because if you, for me this is so profound, I think we, it gets lost on us, that if you flicked a few pages to your left in the book of Mark that we just read in chapter 8, Mark 1 begins with Jesus, a rabbi, going to go and call two young guys who, who would become his first disciples, and we find Andrew and Peter, what are they doing? They are fishing. With who? Their dad named Zeb, Zebedee. They're there, Zeb's fishing tours, you know, he's there, I can see it in my head. They're working with dad. What does that mean for those two boys? They hadn't made it. They weren't following a rabbi. They'd gone at some stage. We don't know where or what level after Beit Sefer, Beit Samud, but at some level, they, they said they, they weren't the best of the best. So they went to go and do dad's business. Amazing. And a rabbi named Jesus walks into their story, and he says these words that every Jewish boy was longing to hear, longing to hear. They knew if I made it, because the rabbis of those days were the rock stars. I don't know what happened. They started laying ready to be pastors. I don't know, maybe. But they were the rock stars of the day. You know, they were like, you wanted to get in with one of those rabbis. But these guys hadn't made it. And Jesus walks into their story, and he says these words, come follow me. 
profound. This was like boom. What this actually meant was they knew to hear those words was to have a rabbi say, I believe that you can be like me. Wow. Mind blowing. Mic drop. I'm out of here. It's like, wow. This is profound. This was just not some isolated text. I remember reading it the first time and thinking, why would they leave everything? Why would they just left? They go up at once and they left everything. Was because this was so loaded in their culture for a rabbi to call you. Was, was, this was, they, you were supposed to go and find a rabbi. But this rabbi came to their story and said, I believe that you can be like me. And they're like, but we, we can't. And they're probably, him, me, dad, who are you calling? He says, no, you guys. And you're like, yeah, but we, we failed. No, no, no. Come, follow me. It's not just an invitation, not just a, not just a command, come and do it. He was always, almost a, a, a responding and putting faith in your heart saying, you can be like me. Be like me. Be like me. Be seen on TV as the rap goes. I want to tell you, this is so profound because I really believe that Jesus here is here. As we said, we are Jesus people. I believe that we are not here just to do a Sunday after Sunday. I believe Jesus is here today and he's walking in between the aisles and he's, and he's calling people and he's saying this into you, whispering into your ears, declaring over destiny, come follow me. And it's an invitation, not just, not just a, a religious call like, yeah, come and do it. No, him coming and saying, I believe you can be like me. And a lot of us go, no, 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 you, you don't know how wicked my heart is. And he goes, yeah, I do. Come follow me. Yeah, but you don't know how filthy my mind is. Yeah, I do. Come follow me. But I, I'm not qualified. I haven't done it. I, I don't, come follow me. You can be like me. Not just, not just stand on the sides. Okay, I'll just attend church. No, you can be like Jesus. Wow. Amazing. So let me just very quickly to bring us up to speed. The four goals. Once they were in Beth Midrash, we'll go to the next slide. Every uh, disciple of a rabbi in that culture had four goals. The first goal, if we go to the next one, was uh, two back. Sarah, we're not working too well together. Somewhere in there. Did you move all the slides? Leave it there. Don't worry. It's fine. The first one was to be with your rabbi. The first point for all of them was to be with your rabbi. That's the first goal of every disciple was to be with their rabbi. 24-7, they, the, when, the, when your rabbi slept, you slept. When he ate, you ate. You drank what he drank. You did that day and night. Went to a party, you were extended invitation. It was a no-brainer. If your rabbi went to a wedding, his disciples were coming with. His posse, his squad were coming. The guys were coming. And this was so huge because this was, the goal was for them to follow closely. They told stories of rabbis in Jewish custom of rabbis walking with their, their like duckling-like followers, following them at every place, trying to keep up, trying to get close, trying to push and jostle ahead. To, they didn't want to miss a moment with their rabbi that even when the rabbi went to the loo, they'd have to, hey guys, back off. I'm going to the bathroom because they, they were like, don't want to miss a thing. And so much so, there's a, a phrase in the Jewish culture which is like a blessing that you pray over your young children saying, may you be covered in your rabbi's dust. Let you say that. May you be covered in your rabbi's dust. What does that mean? That you'll follow so closely, you're so closely you want to be with him, that as he walked and his, his, the dust was kicked up by his feet, that you'll be covered in it, and it'll be a sign that you're pressed and hard. Number one was to be with your rabbi. Number two was to learn your rabbi's teaching. And in, in the Jewish world, the word teaching, they use the word his yoke. Now, the reason for this is because they, they all read the same scriptures, but each rock star rabbi had a different way of interpreting them. 
And they called that each rabbi had his own yoke, the way he interpreted the scripture. And your, your disciples, your apprentices, your students, your followers would not only learn the scriptures, but they'd learn the way you interpreted it. That's why it's, it's amazing. We, we see it in, in scripture where Jesus will come. He says, you have heard it said, but now I tell you. And he brings his own interpretation of scripture. Nothing unusual because that's what rabbis did. They came and they said, you have heard it said that this is what the law means. I want to tell you, this is what I believe the law means. They'll bring their spin on what the, the Bible, the, the, the scriptures were talking about. So what they'll do is they'll learn their rabbi's teachings, not just what he said, but why he said it. They'd argue, wrestle it with them, debate it with them until they owned it themselves. Number one was to be with your rabbi. Number two, to learn your rabbi's teachings. Number three was to become like your rabbi. They said if your rabbi prayed in a certain way, you would learn to pray that way. If your rabbi ate a meal in a certain way, if he told a story in a certain way, you would try and tell the story the same way your rabbi did. They used to love, they almost said, if you've seen the, if you've seen the followers, you've seen the rabbi, because they're identical. And, and uh, this is not a foreign thing. We see it at our church, at Life Changes. I remember a table be laughing. Mark Van Plessen, if any of you know him, he's worshiping, and he works, worships in a, sim, in a similar style like this when he worships. And I look down the road, there's three young guys who are also worshiping like this now. You know, they just, it's, just, it's, like, it's not uncommon for this thing that people, they want, we, we start to become like him. Another story where R.T. Kendall was telling a story about Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a preacher of preachers uh, back in the early, of the early part of the 20th century. And, uh, and, and it used to be funny. When he used to get fired up, he'll start doing this with his ear. And then R.T. Kendall says, funny, all the younger generation of preachers, whenever they start to get fired up, they'll start doing this with their ear because they thought that was where the power was. You know, when you touch your ear, the anointing is flowing. Until Martin Lloyd-Jones told him, no, when I just start getting a little bit louder, I, I, my ear gets a little bit itchy, you know? And they're like, oh, I thought maybe it was a spiritual thing. <laughs> no. But that's what the people, you know, you become like your rabbi. And uh, they said you wanted to be a mirror image of your rabbi. A whole person transformation. You would, you would give up your identity in a sense to become like your rabbi. And fourthly, the goal was to carry on your rabbi's work in the world. Isn't that the goal of every apprentice? your apprentice to be a plumber, you're not doing it so one day you can go be a doctor. You're apprenticing as a plumber so that you can one day become a plumber. Simple. You know, I, I think that's what they wanted to do. And, and at the end of this training, after Beit Midrash, they, they followed, they were with their rabbi, they learned his teachings, they were becoming like him, they were wanting to carry on his teachings in the world. If the rabbi thought you had made it and he had confidence that you can take his yoke and start to talk it and, and teach it and train up a new generation, what he would say at the end of your training is this, go make disciples. That's what a rabbi would say. Profound. So very quickly this morning, what are our goals? Let's go to the next slide. Thanks. Simple. This is simple. This is no-brainer stuff, but I think sometimes we don't understand these things. Number one, our goals as followers, apprentices, students, disciples of Jesus. Number one, our goal is to be with Jesus. Mark chapter 1, the book that we've been reading the last three weeks that I've been preaching out of, Mark chapter 1 starts with Jesus saying, calling those to follow him. He says he called them, why? Comma, so that they may be with him. Jesus' desire was that they may be with him. The whole gospel is, is framed with that first call, calling us so that we may be with him. And at the end, he says, go make disciples. And he says, and I will be with you even until the very end. The soul of the gospel, Jesus' interaction with his disciples is framed with him saying, I want you to be with me and I will be with you. 
the whole narrative is framed on this. I want to tell you this incredible truth that the, what Jesus is on about is not to make you morally superior. Shocker. He's not here to do that, despite what many Christians on Facebook think. He's not. He's not here to, he's not here to make you wealthy, believe it or not. I wish he was, but he's not. My bank balance proves it. I'm telling you, he's not here to make you knowledgeable. He's not here to make you a better person. But disclaimer, following Jesus, you will become a better person. It's just a disclaimer. But that's not his goal. His goal is that you would be with him. This is what one person said. If you go to the next slide, thanks, Sarah. The first and primary goal of being a disciple of Jesus is to learn, in, to, learn to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit. Might sound a bit mystical, but that's what it is. Being with Jesus is quite mystical. Let me say it again. It's learning to live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Spirit of Jesus. The Bible makes no bones about this. It doesn't try and sell us down the river on any other path. John 15 says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, call us the, he's the vine, we are the branches. He said, if you remain in me, you will bear much fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, it's in me, be with me. Brother Lawrence, another man who was a very mystical, um, uh, ancient day mystic, he wrote a series of letters in a small, small book that you can download for free, and I'll recommend you to do it. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. And he spoke about how you can practice the presence of God, being entering into the presence of God because Jesus is with us. John Wesley, a Methodist, the big poster boy for the Methodists, on his deathbed, he said this, when everything had died, when everything had gone, he had tough times with his wife, he had had much uh, pain and anguish with people and politics and people and, and being stressed and anxiety with trying to preach the gospel but getting opposition. At the very end on his deathbed, he says, best of all, we have God. Best of all, we have God. You know, not best of all, yes, we've extended the ministry or we've done the, no, best of all, I've got God. And, and it sounds so trite and commonplace, but I want to tell you, Jesus, it needs to be said that Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end. Jesus is the whole, whole bang shoot. He's the whole setup of the gospel that we get God. Wow. Do we need to be reminded of this? I know I do, because I forget. I forget that I, I get God. And it's this profound thing. Dallas Willard, we're going to read a quote. Everyone want to do a little bit of work today. Is that all right? Let's read a quote by Dallas Willard. How's this? Let's just take this in. It's beautiful. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, I love that, in the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward being. Wow, I love that. Just rich and inviting for me. Uh, this is the thing for me. I just have, this is very basic today. This is not rocket science, but this is, I feel, God's call to us to be, a, we are simple people. 
We need to be reminded of the simple, ancient, old truth. Some we want the new, but God says, no, it's in the old. It's in the way I've always been doing. I'm calling you to myself. Phil Hybels calls it this. If I can put a challenge out there. In the pace, fast-paced, frenetic life that we're living, with our phone on the go constantly, with notifications going at every moment, uh, and, and retweets and pop-ups and all these things going on, could we this week do a thing? Bill Hybels calls it chair time. He says, find your favorite chair in your house in the morning. So put your phone away, and he says, for 15 minutes, just sit in your chair. He says, don't even, it's not about even reading the Bible. It's not even about praying. You just sit in the chair and make yourself aware of the presence of God. Why is that important? Because Mark 1 and Matthew 28 and all the scriptures tell us that I'm with you. I'm calling you to be with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can I tell you, in this, this, this dichotomy of our, the thing we call life, we're trying to do spiritual and physical. Can I tell you, Jesus is always there with you. He's always, the presence of God is with you always. Who's just not, who's at fault in this thing? From our side, we are just not aware of it. And I want to tell you, it's not a condemnation thing. I love how Dallas says, Willow says, the practicing of the presence of God. Sometimes we've got to practice this thing. Put into practice, sitting and still everything. Jesus says, be still and know that I am God. So I want to encourage us. I'm going to do this week. And I'm not great at this. I'm ADHD at the best of times. I've got, I've got cricket on the TV. I've got Facebook in my left hand. I'm here. I'm kissing my wife with my left arm. You know, it's just like it's all going. But I want to tell you, I think this thing of being with Jesus is so, it's the utmost thing. It's the utmost delight. And can, can we be a people that's actually put some time aside and say, Jesus, we want to practice this. Anyone want to join me this week? Thank you. I see that hand. I see that hand. Take the name. No, I'm joking. Second thing, very quickly. First thing is to be with Jesus. Second is to learn Jesus' teachings. I love that. As I remind you earlier, the teaching, the word they used was the yoke. Now, it's so phenomenal that when Jesus said this, he said the scripture, come to me all who are heavy loaded and burdened and find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, easy, and my burden is light. What was Jesus meaning? He was saying, my teachings are easy. My teachings are easy. Can I tell you, I've read the teachings of Jesus, and, uh, and I'm like, wow, these are quite complex sometimes. Am I the only one? I'm like, wow, what is he saying? What is he trying to do? I wrestle with them. But the great news, what he was meaning when he said easy, it doesn't mean they were, they were small or insignificant. He was saying they bring freedom and rest. Other teachings put pressure on you, and you have to perform as He says, my teachings, if you're heavy loaded and burdened, come to me. My teachings will bring you rest. Now, now this is huge for me, and I'm on a journey with this, if that's all right. I want to tell you that Jesus was a teacher. They called him rabbi. That's what his job was for three years. From age 30 to 33, he was a rabbi. Now, this is huge because in the, in, in the, the liberal West, years ago, the liberal side of, of, of theology, they made much of it. Jesus is a teacher, and they started to equate it. Just like Gandhi, just like Aristotle, Jesus' teachings are beautiful. So the conservative side responded and said, he's not just a teacher, he's the son of God, which is true. He absolutely is, and we want to preach that. That is what we believe. But I think in the swing, the pendulum swing of saying he's the son of God and not just a teacher, I think we've ended up just saying he's the son of God and we've just forgotten that he was a teacher. And then what happens, the problem with that is that it's produced a generation who know how to die well but have no clue how to live well. This is massive for me because actually Matthew 28, when it talks about go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it says this, and teach them how to obey. 
That is huge. Because I know as a preacher, I've sat in so many sermons, and I've done it, when he said, you must obey. And everyone goes, yes, we must. And they say, you mustn't look at pornography. Yes, we mustn't. And we all know, no, I'm going to try harder. You mustn't. But uh, can I tell you how many times you've walked out of the sermon and said, yes, and you go, how the heck do I do that? I don't know. <laughs> Jesus says, no, no, actually, we've got to learn how to obey. Not just the what. The what is easy. The how to is where we've got to have to do some work. And I think we get in trouble because I've heard Christians, I won't mention Donald Trump's name, I'm joke, joking, but a whole bunch of other, not just Trump, not only just isolated political figures, but I've heard friends of mine and Christians say things and quote God on things where I'm going, I believe Jesus was going, I never said that. But they're quoting him as if it's because they, they don't know his teaching. We don't know. And I, and I, I think this thing, they used to call it the way of Jesus. The, the, before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. Followers of the way. He taught them a different way to live. And we've got to learn that. And I, I, I want to encourage us here. Many of us are basing our eternity on this man named Jesus. Our eternity. And yet we haven't read his book. I'm like, that's madness. Surely that's madness. I've, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, for me, I'm going, I've got to know this thing. I've got to know his teaching. How can I base my attorney on someone and go, ah, you know, the middle stuff, all the other stuff, I hope I make it, I hope I understand this stuff, but I'm just going to, no. yeah, it is a simple faith, but, but from there, to become like our rabbi, we've got to learn his teaching. So I want to encourage us to do that, to this week, chair time, 15 minutes, but then I'd encourage you for 10 minutes after, just 10 minutes after, get your Bible, write down the scriptures that maybe even start with where we started today, in Matthew chapter 8, and then look for the words follower, in the book, um, book of Mark, sorry, the book of Mark, look for the words follower and disciple and underline them. Take note of the scriptures. Start to read and see because Jesus is talking about you when he talks about a follower and a disciple. Start reading. Start learning what he is saying to us. God will speak. I believe that. Thirdly, we want to become like Jesus. The word here is the word spiritual formation. Well, if you're a little older, you would have heard the word sanctification. Becoming like Jesus. I want to tell you this today, that being spiritually formed, being formed in a direction is not just a Christian thing, it's a human thing. Everybody is being formed, one way or another. There's no neutral ground. You're being formed. Everyone's being formed and shaped by your habits, by our communities, by our environments. Every person is being formed by your habits. You become, over a time period of time, the, the things you do. The way you think, you become more and more like that by your environment, by what the country, the pressures you live under, you become a certain way, and by your community, the people you surround yourself with, you end up becoming like. Parents know this very well. That's why they keep their kids away from that bad apple. Okay, am I right, parents? I'm just guessing. You know, I'm not a parent myself yet. But, but I want to tell us that, that Rory Dyer taught us that we're all formed by God, but this journey of life starts to conform us, we start to become conformed, and then we start to become deformed because we allow the things around us to form us in a way. So this is my thing here. We believe in Jesus, and we love Jesus, and I love the fact of Jesus that he's calling us to be like him. When I look at Jesus' life, I just see it. It's, it's, for me, it's so inviting. I never saw Jesus look stressed. Jesus was never stressed. He was never anxious. He was never, oh, how are we going to make it this month? He was never rubbing his hands nervously. He was never fearful. Jesus was a great friend. You know, he was an amazing friend, Jesus. I love that. And can I tell you, Jesus was free from the need to have more things. 
I need more. I love that. You know, Jesus was this incredible thing. And I, I, I feel Jesus is saying, reminding us, you can be like me. It's not this high task. He's saying he's inviting us to become more like him. And this is the disclaimer here. Christ-likeness is not natural. It doesn't just happen. I'm just going to go to church for 30 years. You don't just go to church for 30 years without doing anything else and you suddenly wake up, oh, I'm no longer stressful. Ah, awesome. No, Christ-likeness happens as we swim against the tide, as we, as we engage with the scriptures and we engage with being with him and we say that's our primary goal, be with him, learn his teachings. I'm going to start over time becoming more like Jesus. Discipleship 101. Number four, finally here, to carry out his kingdom vision for the world. Jesus used to preach, believe it or not, he did not come and preach. Uh, his biggest thing wasn't, come to me and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and happy, and clean. No, he didn't say that. And he also didn't major on, you must come to me or you will go to hell. Jesus didn't major on those. Jesus' message was, the kingdom is here. He announced the, the kingdom of God has come. And this is such a profound thing. And what does the kingdom of God look like? When Jesus came and he brought the kingdom of God, what did Jesus do and occupy his time with? I'll tell you now. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He, he mourned with those who mourned. Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He set free those who were oppressed. He ate and drank with those far from God. That's one of what Jesus did. Jesus' evangelism strategy was this. Hey, you're a sinner. I want to come have food at your house. That's the strategy. You go eat with him. Amazing. I love Jesus. This is what Jesus did. Jesus pointed out hypocrisy uh, in the religious hypocrisy, and he preached to truth, to political power. And this is something that, the, this is what Jesus wants to start manifesting in our lives. Now, as Dallas Willard reminds us, it's practice over time. This is not day one, you must heal the sick. Now, it's, it's, this is a journey, a lifelong journey. As the disciples gave themselves day to follow their rabbi for a long time, becoming more and more like him. This is our journey as disciples of Christ. We're going to, over time, we become more and more like Jesus. If we intentionally give ourselves to be with him, learn his teachings, we end up becoming more and more like Jesus. So finally, back to our text, Mark chapter 8. We, one more time. Mark chapter 8 was that scripture where Jesus says he came and he said, came out of the crowd and the disciples. He, he called the crowd disciples. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Four very, very quick things. Jesus' invitation here, number one, to be his disciple, to be his follower, to be his student, to be his apprentice is open, number one, to anybody. He starts off and says, whoever wants to be my disciple. This is not for the elite. This is not for the spiritually amazing, spiritually mature. This is not for the, the godly lookalikes. Look no, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple. This is open to everyone. I want to tell you, you might be saying, I'm reeking of dysfunction, Gabe. I'm reeking of smell of dysfunction. I, I, I just turned left and I'm, I'm dysfunctional. There's problems. I want to tell you again that your identity, according to Jesus, is not who you were, and it's not even who you are. He sees who you're becoming, and he calls you to follow him because he says, you can be like me, with confidence, with faith in you. And this sounds very new age. This always sounds like Oprah stuff, but Jesus believes in you. He does. He sees who you are becoming, and he calls us out of that. The second thing about this story of Jesus' invitation is that it's to be a disciple and not a Christian. Wow. Is there a difference? Yes, there is. Huge difference. In the Bible, New Testament, they use the word Christian three times. 
In the New Testament, they use the word disciple, follower, apprentice, student, 268 times. Let me tell you, this is incredible because Jesus here, can you notice in that, in that scripture, he had, said he had the crowd and he had the disciples. Often I think what we've done in Christianity, we've said there's the crowd, there's the disciples, and then there's the Christians in the middle. We're not too extreme, and we're not with the crowd, but I'm in the middle. There's no middle category called Christian. You're either the crowd or you're a disciple, a student, an apprentice, a follower of Jesus. I hate to rip that rug out of the thing, but there's no middle category. And the question I want to ask you today is, which are you? Are you in the crowd or are you a follower, an apprentice, a student? And it's not just coming to church. I tell you, community and coming to church and being with people, it's, it's so important. This is vital to our maturing in Christ. But I want to tell you, just coming to church does not make you a disciple. As one friend, John Mark Homer, said, as much as going to watch Star Wars will make you a Jedi. You can go watch Star Wars five or six times. You ain't doing anything cool. Definitely not doing anything cool. But I want to tell you, this is a pursuit of becoming more like him. Yeah. Not just becoming like church-like. We're not about making church people. Boring. Count me out. Christ-like people. Thirdly, in the story, it says it's open to anybody. It's, a, it's a, to be a disciple, not a Christian. Thirdly, the word disciple is a noun and not a verb. Now, this is big. This is critical. This is critical, especially for anyone who's my age. Can I tell you, a millennial, I'll use that word, because verbs, are, if it's a verb, if disciple is a verb, not just to let you know, so, you know, we've, used, we've made the noun a verb, so we use it, and it's okay, it's not the end of the world if you do this, but it's biblically not accurate when you say, who are you discipling? Put in any other synonym there, Christian. We will never say, who are you Christianing? Believer? Who are you believering? Ing. Following? Who, who are you following? It just doesn't work in English, and it doesn't make sense. Why? Because disciple is a noun. Why this is huge? It's not just semantics. If it's a verb, then the onus is on someone else needs to disciple me. And I've heard so many people count themselves out of following Jesus because they say, no one's discipled me. When actually the word disciple is a noun, the onus, Jesus comes to you and says, you come follow me. Too many people have disqualified themselves of becoming like Christ because a leader let them down. Because that guy didn't phone me and put me in a course. Discipleship has become a course that we do. What's your discipleship course? There was no course. It was a lifelong ambition. Become like your rabbi. Same as us. Lifelong. The goal of Christianity is to be with Jesus. Is to learn his teachings. To become more like him. And then to carry out his kingdom mandate here on earth. That's our goal. Finally. The scripture tells us that Jesus' invitation is open to anybody. Jesus' invitation is to be a disciple, not a Christian. It's a noun, not a verb. And finally, he says this invitation will not be easy. Wow. I hate to tell you that. I, I look at this and I read when Jesus says, you know, take up your cross and die, deny yourself. I go, Jesus needed a PR guy. I'm in Mar I was in Mark's thing. I'm like, he needed someone to help him say, Jesus Modern day, that, that medieval cross and death stuff doesn't really get the people going. We're more into craft beers and, and lattes. Leave your latte and follow me. I'm like, yeah, then I'm going to leave my latte. But no, but this, this language that Jesus does, says, he says, he talks about this radical stuff. And a man named uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we quoted a few years ago, a German pastor who led an assassination attempt on Hitler's life. Good theologian. Let you know. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this thing. He wrote a, a, a tome, a book, about, and he said, it called it the cost of discipleship. 
At every turn, Jesus was putting a cost on this thing. It's only the modern day church who've taken all price away. Jesus calls the narrow road. The cost of discipleship. It's free, but it'll cost you everything you have. But here's the kicker. When we're thinking about the cost, and you're weighing up the cost of discipleship, it says pick up your cross and deny yourself and die to come follow me. Can I put up on this side the cost of non-discipleship? Far outweighs the cost of discipleship. Can I tell you the cost of non-discipleship? It says it'll cost you having full meaning and purpose in your life. Because this is who we were wired to be as people. Not doing this will rip you. I'm feeling I don't have purpose in my life. Are you doing what Jesus has called us to be? Be with him. Learn his teachings. Become like him. This is simple base stuff, but it's, it's eternal, and it's, co- it's, it's gripping my heart with joy. I want to tell you, it'll cost you purpose. It'll cost you joy. It'll cost you life abundance. It'll cost you peace. Non-discipleship will cost you much, much more. I want to finish today. This is me speaking from a place of vulnerability, that this is, believe it or not, what I am awakening to afresh. For too long, I, I, I don't know what it was, the word discipleship and becoming like my rabbi, I've chalked it up, and the grace of God is the, at the beginning and the end of this. It's the thing that fuels us, it calls us. But I think I bought into a cheap theology that, that, that said the grace of God means I do nothing. And as I did nothing, The grace of God does it, and, and Dallas Willis says that the grace of God is not opposed, it's opposed to earning, but not effort. You can't earn anything, but doesn't mean you mustn't do it. Otherwise, the narrative of the scripture, when Paul says, train as an athlete, Paul, we go, heretic, how dare he calls us to do anything. No, it's not about trying hard, it's about training. Training. And again, I want to tell you, this doesn't happen in overnight. It's day by day. This is what I'm giving myself to, to raise up and to become a Christ-like, world-changing leader. That's what I want to become, and that's what I want to do with my life. That's what Jesus wanted to do. I pray it will settle on us. There's a story. Final, final thing. As Jerry Springer once said. Final thought. When Jesus came, he told this parable. He said that, that he, this young guy, this man, was on his way, and he stumbled upon this treasure, this incredible treasure that would set him up for life. He found this treasure. What he said, what the Bible tells us about him, it says that he, when he found this treasure, he buried it in a field. There was, obviously, the banks weren't great in those days with interest rates. And all, you know? So he buried it in a field. And he said he went home and he sold everything he had so that he could go buy the field so that he could claim that treasure as his own. The radical abandonment, this parable and that perplexed people and people scratching their head. What is Jesus talking about treasure? Why is he talking about this stuff? But Jesus was talking, Jesus is this. He says, I am the treasure. I am the treasure. Can I tell you, you're coming to church maybe week in, week out. Here is the revelation that will change your life. It's all about Jesus. It's all about being with him. This thing of life, this construct called life, the absolute height of it is to be with Jesus. The absolute height of this thing called life is to learn his teachings. The height of it is to become more like him. And the height of this life that we know it's here and now, flesh and blood, is to carry out his teachings. To show the world what he looks like. That one day people say, if you've seen my followers, you would have seen him. I pray this morning that you and I would be covered in the dust of our rabbi. And something would spark in us and say, I want this journey. It'll cost me everything. But I will gain life eternal and joy immeasurable. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we've leaned into the ancient, 
And the, if we lean into the, the tried and tested ways that, that our brothers and sisters have pursued you with for year and year out, century upon century, that our, that our forefathers of the faith have leant into, I thank you, Jesus, that you would capture our hearts again. Father God, I don't want to give my life beating a church drum. Father, I don't want to give my life beating a moralistic drum. God, I don't want to give my life doing the tricks and, 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 and trying to pretend that I'm something better than I'm not. But God, I want to be honest with myself in this moment and say, I am weak, but I thank you that your voice finds me and says, come, follow me. It's an invitation that doesn't demand, but it provides. It provides resource. It provides courage. It provides fulfillment. It provides joy, peace, and it provides life and life to the full. I thank you, Father God, for myself and for my friends here, that this week these things would, re- would go through our head, that number one, to be with you. Number two, to learn your teaching. Number three, to become like you. Number four, to carry on your kingdom mandate in this world. I pray, God, as we settle here with the Spirit of God in this moment, we make decisions. Are we in the crowd? Or are we going to respond and become disciples, followers, students, apprentices? Father God, as for me, I say, yes, Lord, I want to be your disciple. I want to be your follower. I want to be your student. I want to be your apprentice. I thank you, God, as I say yes to that. Your grace floods in. Calls me to to more of you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.